This week has been a tough week. The news has been filled with difficult stories. One after another. We have heard stories about the harm. Seems like a new one every day to our LGBTQ neighbors. We read stories about the threats to our health care and to children's health care. The loss of great artists that have meant things to each of us in ways that only art and artists can. The ongoing crisis of the slow and painful recovery from hurricanes and storms in Puerto Rico, in the Caribbean islands. And of course, last but certainly not least, the news that greeted us after church last Sunday. The news of a horrific, I would say unimaginable, right? But it's happening, mass murder in Las Vegas. Each of these events that has happened is hard enough in and of itself. And yet I think part of what makes it hard for me is not just what's happening, but the stories that I see being told. The stories I see being told about what's going on that are less about grace or giving or abundant love in the face of these situations and more about questions around what people deserve. Narratives that talk about people getting what they deserve. Narratives that presume to decide what people deserve for them. That's what's troubling to me on top of what's happening. There's a story in the New Testament that's just about this, about what people deserve. It's a parable in the book of Matthew. I think it's Matthew chapter 20. And you know, parables are funny things to me. Anytime Jesus starts a story with the kingdom of God is like you know you're in for some bat, sh- bat story. <laughs> a story about bats. A story that, I almost said that yes, and I remember that we didn't do a language warning this morning, so I shouldn't. Jesus goes, the kingdom of God is like, and you're like, can you just give it to us straight for once? Can you just tell us what the kingdom of God will be like so we can start working on it, right? But no, Jesus tells a story, so... This parable begins in the morning, early in the morning at sunrise. There's a vineyard owner, and he goes to the place where the laborers gather, the first century equivalent of Home Depot, because he needs people to work on his farm for the day for the harvest. And he finds a group of workers, and he says, come with me back to my vineyard and pick grapes, and I will give you one uh, denarius, I think it is in the Bible, which is a unit of pay. So let's call it a 20. I'll give you a 20 for the day. And the laborers go along with him. They get into his first century vehicle, whatever that might be, and they go back to the vineyard, and they start working. The vineyard owner leaves for lunch, and as he passes that same spot, he sees more workers gathered, and he invites them to come back and work on his farm. And then he goes out again towards the end of the day, like 4 p.m., and he sees more workers gathered, and he invites them to come back to his farm. And as the sun begins to set, he asks his staff, please line up all the workers and make sure that you put the ones who arrived at 4 p.m. at the front of the line, and then the ones at noon, and then the ones early in the morning. And please give all of them a 20. 
Now, how do you think the workers at the end of that line who've been slaving since five in the morning are feeling? How do you think they're feeling? Tired? (laughs) They're a little frustrated, right? They're like, WTF, vineyard owner, what is this about? We've been here all day. How come these guys are getting paid the same amount as we are? And the vineyard owner says, did I not keep my agreement? Did I not give you what I promised I would give you in the morning? And is it not up to me to decide out of what I have what I will give? The parable ends with a repetition of that line that you see in other places in the New Testament. The kingdom of God, however that translates for you, the promised land, the beloved community, the world that will look the way we want it to when there's heaven on earth. The kingdom of God is a place where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The gifts we receive will not be earned by our labor. They'll be given. And all who are open to receive will be given those same precious gifts. Now, preachers in America have a hard time with this story. I wonder why. What does it sound like, that economic system that's happening? It doesn't quite sound like the way we do things here. It would be a mistake, I think, to take this story literally, like it's a mistake, I think, to take most scriptures literally. To me, what this story says is that in the beloved world that Jesus is imagining, all the ways we think about people getting what they deserve will not be how the world works. In the beloved world, Jesus is imagining all the ways we in our current world, our current context, think about how people get what they deserve. It will not be how the world works. How will it work? I don't know. That's my time. Thank you, guys. No. I wish it were that easy, right? I don't know. But I know that this feels a lot like the place we're in in our world right now. A place where things are breaking down, things that used to tell us reliably how this world around us worked. And as those things are breaking down, those systems are breaking down, we don't know yet what is going to arise or emerge in its place. Millennials, people of my generation and a few others out there, apparently we're destroying everything, right? That's what we hear. We're destroying home ownership. We're destroying car ownership and the diamond industry and Applebee's. God forbid we're destroying <laughs> low-priced, heated, reheated food. We hear a lot about the end of institutions that we have trusted. I was raised to plan for the fact that Social Security would not be there for me. I was told that by parents and financial advisors to plan for that. These institutions are breaking down, and we hear more talk about ideas that have always sounded very kind of out there. We hear more talk about ideas like free college, about prison abolition, about universal basic income, things that sound very much not like the way things work and not like what we're used to. I saw this the other day. Look at this. On the left-hand side, 2006, don't talk to strangers on the Internet, never get in a stranger's car. 2016, literally use the Internet to call strangers and get in their cars. Uber, Lyft, what happened? Ten years. It's perfect.
perfect, right? It's so true. We can laugh, right? And we can laugh about Uber, and we can laugh about Applebee's. And yet there are bigger things breaking down. These are small facets of the larger system that at times feels disturbing to us. Because many of us have felt secure in the way things have been. And this isn't just about your generation or your identity. I think for all of us, there's some place where we have felt secure with knowing how the system works and how we can work it. And when that begins to break down, we live in a very complicated place, a mix of fear and hope. For me, I know they cycle through sometimes on the hour. Is this good or is this bad? Is this the birth of something new or is this the death of everything we know? Is it both? I don't know. I have a feelings chart on my fridge at home. Looks like this. You can make one of these, by the way. All you need to do is write out a bunch of different feelings. You can put circles around them. You can put tally marks next to them. There are apps for this, of course, mood trackers. It's a useful practice, I find, to move that little frame around that says, today I feel, and just notice if I have any habits or ruts in my emotional life. I got this about three months ago, and let me tell you what the number one feeling that I feel most often is. That one. Frustration. Frustration is something I've always associated with anger because I get angry when I'm frustrated. But frustration actually means disappointment. It means that you've hit some kind of wall, that you're blocked from a place you want to be. Frustration is the emotion we feel when we have the inability to change something or achieve something. It's the feeling we get when there's a thing in the way of our progress or our success or our fulfillment. Frustration at its core is a feeling of powerlessness. Powerlessness over whatever that wall is that's in front of us. And when we don't know how to get over and we don't know how to win, we begin to realize it becomes real that we might lose. So frustration brings up a lot of other feelings around it. Working skillfully with frustration is definitely one of my challenges. And as I noticed that I felt it so often, I began to get curious about it. When we get frustrated, there are a lot of responses we can choose, but there are two big categories, I think. We can choose a response that grinds us down and crushes us. That's what I talked about when we began this message series in September. My typical response to frustration to that wall is to put my head down and try to drill through it. That hurts. Me and the wall. We can get stuck and dig in our heels and say, I'm not willing to lose. And that's a very human response. But there's also an adaptive kind of response to frustration. A response that acknowledges that loss is part of life. That we lose things all the time. That our ego, our stories about how things are, our security, our health, everything we have eventually will be lost. I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we know that it's true. 
Loss is part of this life. And denying that it's part of this life will only hurt us even more than the loss itself. And so a mature and more healthful way that we might deal with that fear of loss, with that frustration that says we don't want to, a more healthful way might be to accept it. I didn't say like it, but accept it. And find a way, once we've accepted it, to work with it. All of us can probably call up moments of frustration that we have felt recently. We can notice what emotions come along with frustration for us. I want to ask you to notice something different. Ask you to choose to notice something different. Close your eyes if you're comfortable. Nobody's looking at you. Don't worry. Leave them open if you want. I want you to call to mind something. I want you to call to mind whatever the most beautiful, helpful, healing thing is in your life right now. What is it? Barbara Brown Taylor says, what is saving your life right now? Call it into your awareness and just hold it there. Let it be there. It might be a person. It might be a place. It might be a practice, a recovery path, a commitment. It might be a book you're reading, a poet you've discovered, a musician. What is saving your life right now? Notice what feelings come up when you hold that thing in your awareness. Come on, popcorn up. What are some of the feelings that arise? Love, peace, calm, gratitude. Okay, you can open your eyes if you're willing. I know it's nice to be there, right? And now I want you to think back to five years ago, 2012. Raise your hand if you had not yet encountered that person or that thing in 2012. Keep your hands up. Raise your hand if you had not yet encountered that person or that thing 10 years ago in 2007. How about 20 years ago? Yeah. 30 years ago. There's a teacher in my life who said this to me recently. Sorry, you can put your hands down. She said, it's possible that the next thing that will be crucial to your healing and your wholeness will be something you have never heard of or thought of before. It's possible that the next thing that will be crucial to your healing and wholeness as a person will be something you have never even thought of or heard of before. It's not only possible, it's probably true in each of our lives when we look back that there was a moment before we knew that next thing that would save us. That is the beauty and grace of a fresh start. That's the grace of this world where sometimes stuff shows up, even out of scary and hopeless places. New life and new ways emerge for us. If we dig a little deeper, each of us, into whatever what it was that we held in our minds just now, we will probably find a loss somewhere that preceded it. We will probably find a frustration that drove us to openness to something new. Or maybe if it wasn't something specific we can point to, maybe it's more like Reverend Ken talked about last week, an emptiness we carried that we weren't even sure where it came from. 
Whose loss is this? Was it passed down to us from a different generation? Whether we know the loss or whether we only feel the ache of the emptiness, that open space in our lives was where we were ready to receive something new. Richard Rohr, the Catholic contemplative teacher, has a book that I know many of us have read called Falling Upward. It's a book about the two halves of life, as he calls it. The first half where you're building and you're creating and you're making a container and building a sense of your identity. And the second half that is marked by a long process of loss. The book is all about how there are gifts to be found in that loss. A fall has to precede growth. He says the falling will happen. There is no way to avoid it entirely. But the growth in the second half of life doesn't necessarily happen because we can stay stuck if we wish to. We can refuse the second half. Or we can open to some alternative vision, even if it doesn't actually make sense yet. You know, despite my frustration with Jesus about this thing, we'll get into other things later. I like a lot about Jesus. But despite my, I do, despite my frustration with the, the parable way that Jesus likes to speak, the roundabout way that he gets to the point, you know, I think parables are actually an exercise in this very thing that we're talking about. Parables and fables and poems and koans in the Buddhist tradition and riddles, these are all indirect ways that can speak to some kind of shifting and adapting awareness that we can't even put words to yet. Those kinds of stories can introduce us to new ideas in ways that may not work if someone just told it to us straight. And so I'm going to close today with a parable I heard on NPR. That sounds like a bad UU joke, doesn't it? (laughs) But I did. It's a story of someone who moved into the second half of life really beautifully after falling a lot in the first half of her life. I heard this story because I was in San Francisco last weekend, as some of you know. I was visiting a friend who's the kind of friend that sends you a six-page long email of things to do while you're in her city, which was nice. And I noticed one thing. She told me about a coffee shop, and she said, oh, this is the coffee shop that was featured in that NPR story about expensive toast. Millennial magnet right here, right? I'm going to Instagram that toast. And so I set out on a mission, and I imagined, based on her little teaser, that the coffee shop I was going to would look something like this. Some of you may have been to La Colombe. This is the La Colombe in Fishtown in the city. It is kind of the uber-millennial hipster La Colombe location. Everyone in this picture is under 40. That girl could pretty much be me, right, right there. And it's the kind of place that I like to go with a book and just hang out for a couple hours. So I thought, this is what I'll do on my first day in San Francisco. But when I got to Trouble Coffee Company, it didn't look like that. It looked like this. It's, it's a single car garage-sized space in the outer sunset, which is a very windy part of San Francisco that not a lot of people go to, certainly not tourists. And I went inside, and there wasn't really room to sit down. 
So I ordered my toast. This is what it looked like. This is my real Instagram picture. It's very good. And I sat down outside to eat it. And I thought, well, since I'm not going to be able to get comfortable and hang out here, I'll at least listen to that NPR story. I'll eat my toast. The journalist who captured this story, it turns out, had the same experience I had. He went to this place in San Francisco called The Mill that sells $6 slices of toast, and they're all fancy, and they're artisanal, and he thought, you know, I'm 35 with two kids. I never know about a trend before it happens. I'm going to do a story about toast in San Francisco. And he went back to interview the owner of The Mill, and the guy said, look, I'd love for you to do a story about my shop, but it didn't start here. It started at this place called Trouble Coffee. When the journalist went to talk to the owner of Trouble Coffee, he realized that this is a very different story than he thought. This is Giulietta Corelli. She opened Trouble Coffee about 10 years ago. It was only two years ago that she received a diagnosis that began to help her in a lifelong struggle of schizoaffective disorder. Before her diagnosis, she thought that this was just what was wrong with her. She had no other way of knowing what life could be like. When she was 16, she began to notice loud, grating voices in her head. She thought at the time that it was the people she was hanging out with. She said, I partied pretty hard in high school, and I thought people were slipping acid and LSD into my beer. But she said she would notice that at weird times, like sitting in English class in high school, she felt like she was outside of her body looking down. She couldn't concentrate because of the noises in her mind and things that were small to other people, things like crumpling and shifting of papers, were unbearable for her. She had a hard time eating because of the sound of chewing inside her own head. She thought this was just how she was. There was nothing to do about it. And she went on with her life. She made it through college four different colleges in eight or nine years. She bounced around a lot. She said, my illness was like this ticking time bomb in my life everywhere I went. It would be okay at first, but eventually roommates would kick me out. Romances would fall apart. Friends would say, no thank you. She would get fired from jobs, or sometimes she said, They just stopped scheduling me quietly for shifts. At one point, she found herself in San Francisco when she was a student at Berkeley. She was having an episode, and she called her episodes Trouble. That's where the name came from for the coffee shop. She said, I was walking through the streets of San Francisco that day, not sure where I was, I called the police and told them a tree had fallen on me. It hadn't. I was a mess. She said, I ended up at China Beach, which is this cold, cold beach on the northwest side, I think, of San Francisco. And I met a man, a short man wearing nothing but a Speedo in his 60s. His name was Glenn. Apparently, Glenn was there every day. He was a fixture at China Beach, always sunbathing in the cloudy, chilly San Francisco weather in a Speedo. She sat down and talked to him, and she says, I don't remember much about that first conversation, but I know that it was that day that I saw this group of big, burly, hairy Russian men come out of the water. And I said to Glenn, what are they doing? It's freezing. 
And he said, this is what they like to do. She talked with the Russian men for a while, and she realized, you know, I feel so weak. I feel so fallen apart. I want to be strong like these big, burly Russian men. Because of her illness, she bounced around a little bit more. She left San Francisco. She was in New York for a while. It was in New York that she began to discover the first thing that had really worked for her, the first thing that had really helped coconuts. When she drank coconut water, or when she chewed the meat of a coconut, it didn't bother her so much with the chewing. She had a hard time eating anything. Everything felt like poison to her when she was having an episode. And coconuts are actually pretty nutritious. The other thing she found out about coconuts is when you stand on a street corner in New York City holding a coconut, people talk to you. She said, I did studies. I stood there with a sandwich, and I stood there with a coconut, and it wasn't even close. So she began to build some connections. Small though they might have been, they mattered so much to her. It was in New York when she went to a party one night, and for some reason she remembered. She thought about those big, burly Russian men who seemed so strong. And she said, you know, I got nothing to lose. And so she got in her car the next day and drove cross-country back to San Francisco. She went to the beach, and Glenn was there. She started going to China Beach every single day. Glenn was always there, and at the end of every conversation, he would say to her, the same thing every day, I'll see you tomorrow. She started swimming in the ocean like those big, strong men. The routine of that was the second thing she found that helped her. She worked in a coffee shop while she was in San Francisco, and she was homeless a lot of the time. One night, her boss found her sleeping in the back, and instead of firing her, he said, I think it's time for you to open your own shop. He said, just brew some coffee, buy some cups, and when the cups run out, close the door and go get more cups. She said, that was my business plan. (laughs) And it was enough. She went to City Hall. She opened a checking account. She got what she needed to start a very small business in a tiny, tiny spot the size of a single-car garage in the outer sunset in a neighborhood nobody went to. And she said, I just put all the things that work for me in one place. Trouble sells coffee. It sells coconuts. And it sells toast. And here's where the NPR reporter says, so why the toast? Where did the toast come from? She said, my mom used to make me toast. It made me feel safe. It felt like home, and I knew it would for other people. I mean, come on, who can be mad at toast? It's toast. Everybody's stoked. (laughs) The narrator said, you know, most people survive in this world by developing a small handful of strong ties with a spouse or family members or very close friends. But strong ties always had a way of buckling under the weight of Julietta's illness. Julietta wears the same thing every day. A headscarf, a crop top, ripped jeans. She has all those tattoos because she wants people to remember her. She takes the same path to and from work every day because she talks to the workers, the city workers building buildings or working on streets. She gets to know them. When they see her, they recognize her. They don't just think there's that crazy lady. They think there's trouble. Most people call her trouble. And she can ask them for help. 
when I'm having a rough day, she says, she can say, you know, my mind is racing. Can you help me get to work? I have to get to work. Can you give me a ride? And they do. Most people survive by building a few strong ties, but Julietta adapted. And she found a way to build a very large web of weak ties. But that kind of a web, when it's thick enough and wide enough, it will hold you. That's what she found. May we all be willing to take the risk to let go of what isn't working for us. May we all be willing in these tough days to find some of the openness and the space that Julietta had to really let go of what's not working and to listen for what we can really trust. Be open to whatever new ways or new life we each might need right now. Amen. And may you all live in blessing. I want to invite you to pray with me. God of all the spaces between us, creator, whoever or whatever you might be of this place that we all call home, this earth, this world that we all share. May we keep ourselves as much as we can oriented to this world with our hearts open to things we don't understand, with our hearts open to new ways that might be emerging that we don't know how to control. May we keep ourselves safe, and yet may we still remember that we don't know everything, we can't do everything, and we need each other. And may we not have our eyes closed to the lifelines that will be thrown to us every now and then, ready for the next one whenever it shows up. For these prayers that I've spoken and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.